Chapter 18, Luke, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Today, Minister Jeff will be continuing our sermon series on the kingdom of God is like, and the sermon will be entitled, The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. Jeff, over to you. Good morning, Crossbridge. As we prepare to hear from God's word, let's actually come together and pray. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. God, we give you praise and thanks for your greatness and glory, but also for your mercy and your faithfulness to each and every one of us. We thank you that as a parent cares for and is patient with their children, so too, even more so, do you extend your love, your care, your patience towards us. This morning, we ask that your spirit would be working in our hearts to open the eyes of our hearts, that, that you would reveal the parts of our lives that we stubbornly hold on to. You would enable in us the ability and the desire to relinquish it all up to you for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This morning, uh, Jesus tells this simple two-person parable in our passage. There's two uh, characters are presented. There's a Pharisee and a tax collector. And, and neither are really caricatures. They're real characters, you know, real types of people that Jesus' audience would have been very familiar with. And these two characters, these two types of people are set up in juxtaposition to one another. Now, I think what we might miss about this parable, and part of it might be because of our cultural distance, is how Jesus' audience would have seen them, how, how they would have uh, perceived them. And it might be a little bit different than, than us. So, for example, the term Pharisee, for us, it already has a pretty negative connotation. Pharisee equals bad. You know, Pharisee equals hypocrite. I mean, we, we hear any story in the Bible uh, that has a Pharisee, and we reflexively think, oh, you know, I already know you know who the bad guy is in the story. You know, don't be like the Pharisee. Now, that may or may not be true, but we miss out on some of the exciting twists and turns that Jesus injects into his teachings and which are meant to turn upside down our understanding of the kingdom of God. Jesus' audience is, is presented with these two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector. 
Now, in their minds, in their first century context, the Pharisee is, is clearly the one who is righteous. He is the moral exemplar. He is the one who obeys the law of Moses. He, he dedicates his life to God with such rigorousness and discipline. And there's, there's nothing wrong with what the Pharisee does, per se, in, in this parable. You know, as we read this passage, it's, it's a good thing that the Pharisee in the parable is not like the unjust. It is good that he is not an extortioner or an adulterer. It is good that uh, he fasts and ties. Don't get me wrong, these are not bad things. The Pharisees were held in high esteem by the people. Now, on the other hand, the, the tax collector, well, you know, that was one of the most hated professions. These tax collectors charged tolls uh, and taxes on behalf of the Roman government. And so these were private government subcontractors who would tax travelers as they carried their merchandise from one location to another. In Rome, you see, they preferred to hire locals who, who knew the people, who knew the roads and the terrain. And so these tax collectors, some of them from their own people, would, would make a profit by demanding a higher amount, a higher tax from the people than what they paid to the Roman government. And so, you know, from the get-go, the, the system is already kind of built for greed and corruption and, and dishonest gain. And so to Jesus' audience, the tax collector was viewed very negatively. And, and now that, that is why how the parable plays out this morning is so surprising. Again, I think it's a bit harder for us to, to see that twist when we already come to the passage with a predisposed negative view of the Pharisees. It's even harder to find a modern comparison when we're, you know, when you think about it, we're not really surprised anymore. We're a little bit desensitized when the pastors or leaders or, or other people who we think to be righteous and upright have a fall from grace. And social media and technology have already kind of made it pretty apparent. And so we're probably not too surprised about the Pharisee when we read uh, the passage, the parable for us this morning. Of course, of course, he would go home uh uh, not justified. Now, what about the tax collector? Could we be surprised there as Jesus' audience might have been? Now, I think for us, you know, we're quick to point out modern day religious Pharisees. You know, we proclaim, hey, Jesus is love. Of course, Jesus dines with the sinners and the tax collectors. But do we, do we know what that means? You know, given that presumably, Presumably, we wouldn't be surprised to see what Jesus says about the tax collector at the end of the parable, but let's, let's actually put this to the test. So in the eyes of Jesus' first century audience, these tax collectors were extortionists, people who preyed on their own. I'm reminded of the pharma bro, Martin Shkreli, who uh, he was the one who upped the price of that one, one of the drugs, I think was an anti-malaria drug. He upped it by a factor of 56 from $13.50 per pill to a whopping $750 per pill. And so when he did that, there was immediate widespread backlash all across the board. He, he was dubbed the most hated man in America. And so if you want to Google him and you, you don't know how to spell his last name, you can just Google. If you Google the most hated man in America, 
just all these articles that have to do with him. Now, maybe it's not Martin, but you know, think of someone in the public sphere who you cannot stand. You know, you wonder how they can do the things they do, how they can say the things they say. But when you think about them, you feel disgust, you feel frustration and disappointment and anger. And maybe even right now, as you think about them, you begin to feel something bubbling up within you. Maybe some of you are even shouting the name in frustration out loud right now at home. Your nostrils begin to flare. Now take that person and put them in the place of the tax collector in our parable. The one who went home justified. Now how do you feel? Confused? Conflicted? Experiencing a little bit of cognitive dissonance? Now I think we're getting a little closer to the impact and the force of Jesus' parable and why the gospel at heart is so countercultural, so offensive sometimes, because the gospel doesn't play according to our rules. That's something that sometimes gets lost on some of us. Now, before we move on, let me be a, a Abundantly clear. Now, I'm in no way trying to make a judgment on Martin or whoever was in your mind at home in that thought experiment. The, the tax collector does not go home justified just because he is a tax collector. The passage does not address the need for bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. There's, there's other passages that talk about that, but that's not the focus here uh, for us this morning. The point of that kind of example and the thought exa- uh, experiment is to, to help us experience the force of Jesus' parable, how his initial audience might have heard it, what they would have felt when they kind of saw that twist and turn, and, and to even to prepare us for the question that Jesus seeks to address in this parable, which is this, who does God accept? Who does he justify? Those who trust in God's mercy and not in their merit. And those who do not lift themselves up by looking down at others. In verse 9, Jesus is telling this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. The parable is a correction to them. And likewise also to us who exhibit a similar attitude. Trust in God's mercy and treat others without contempt. Trust in God's mercy and treat others without contempt. So let's turn now to our passage, Luke chapter 18, 9 to 14. Uh, again, the, the question that this parable asks is, who does God accept? You know, what kind of righteousness are, are we talking about here? Who does he justify? And I think there's two parts to this answer. And the first is this. Those who trust in his mercy and not in their merit. So we look at these two characters, the Pharisee and the tax collector. The the Pharisee trusts in his merit, like the the people who Jesus was speaking to in verse 9. The Pharisee trusted in his own merit. He approaches God in prayer, and this is what he says in verses 11 to 12. God, that's good so far. Then he continues, "I, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So 
Notice how he prays. He begins by addressing God, and that's good. But then he immediately continues on to talk about himself five times. Five times he refers to himself. He's describing what he's not. You know, I am not like the unjust. I'm not like this tax collector. It's quite egocentric. And each time he's described himself in this active voice, his prayer focuses, yes, on what he's not, but also on what he himself is doing or what he's done. So he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And as he's recounting these things in prayer to God, he he also makes an effort to show how much he has gone beyond what is required. He has this overachieving mentality, this overachieving morality even. The law of Moses uh, really only required fasting once a year on the Day of Atonement. This guy fasts 103 more times than what is required. When it comes to his tithe, his tithe probably is also more than what is required. Maybe he's, you know, there's some records of Pharisees fasting herbs and things are not really required. Things that God doesn't say, you know, you need to give to me, but sure, you know, whatever. Uh, or, or fasting even the food that he ate, not just the crops that he's grown. Now, again, there, there's nothing wrong with these things. There's nothing wrong with fasting and tithing. These are good things. The Pharisee was viewed positively. That, that's how Jesus' audience would view the Pharisee. Wow, he's a, a paragon of moral excellence. He's a moral example for all of us. He didn't become an extortionist. He didn't stop fasting or stop giving. These are all good things. And yet somehow, after all of this, he's the one who goes home unjustified. Not accepted by God. Why? Because his attitude, in part, before God is, is quite arrogant. He presents his accomplishments to God as if they deserve him to be accepted by God. His trust is in his own righteousness, in what he's accomplished. The same problem with the people who Jesus is uh, telling this parable to. It's not that being righteous is bad. That's not the case here. It's believing that acceptance and justification from God comes from your own righteousness, your own merit, rather than God's mercy. Where is your trust this morning? When you think about where you stand with God, where is your your confidence? Where is your assurance, even? Some of you this morning watching, you know, if you don't believe in God and maybe perhaps you've, you found your way over to our Crossbridge worship service this morning, welcome. Uh, maybe some of you are trying to figure out where you fit in this message. Maybe there's a few of you who think, you know, if, if I do, if I were to believe in a God, then I, I think I should be in a pretty good place since I'm a, uh, since I'm a decent person. And there's no way I'm going to disagree, disagree with you about that, uh, you know. You probably are a decent person. But I think what Jesus has done in telling this parable is he's taking a character like the Pharisee, who in the mind and eyes, the view of the first century audience, he was a paragon of moral excellence and said, that doesn't matter when it comes to where you stand with God. Sometimes as Christians, we probably know better than to pray such an 
uh, audacious prayer, arrogant prayer like that. But there are maybe other ways in which we go about trusting in our own merit than God's mercy. Maybe, for example, like the Pharisee, we're also overachievers. Uh, but in, we, we do so in, in ultimately in areas that don't really matter when it comes to our standing with God. In some of our fellowships, like ICF and Karis, we actually do keep track of attendance. It's not something we really publicize, but the, the point is for us as leaders, small group leaders, core leaders, the point is for us to have better accountability for and better knowledge for how we can care for our members. Because sometimes time passes by so quickly that it's so easy to deceive ourselves into thinking that things are a certain way when they're not. Now, if so if, if someone hasn't shown up for a few weeks, then we can know, we can reach out to them. Rather than assuming, oh, I think they were there last week, or yeah, they've been showing up. You know, if someone is new, then we can we can know and follow up with them. If if more people show up when there's a Bible study than when there's like game night, then I don't know. Uh, I guess that's good, or or maybe just everyone's tired of Jackbox. Now, again, we don't we don't publicize this for for good reason because you know, looking at this attendance sheet, especially even for us in leadership, it's so easy to think. So tempting to think, you know, I have perfect or near perfect attendance. The Bible really only talks about meeting together on the first day of the week on, on Sunday for, for worship. But I've not only done that, but this Excel spreadsheet shows that I also do it on several other days of the week. And then on some level, maybe subconsciously, we begin to trust in what we see right in front of us. We begin to trust in this, this Google spreadsheet. We begin to trust in our own merit. The Pharisee trusts in his own merit, in his righteousness. The tax collector, however, trusts in God's mercy. Verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So begin to notice the uh, the contrast between these two characters. The tax collector stands far off in this temple. He approaches God with humility. Actually, more is, is said about his posture than about his prayer. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast, showing a sign of contrition. And as he prays, it's really different than the prayer of the Pharisee. This is the tax collector's prayer, just a couple words. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So here, as he prays this really short prayer, he describes himself in the passive voice. God is the subject. God is the one doing the action of showing mercy. Him, the tax collector, is the, the, tax collector is the one simply receiving that action. When we look at the Pharisee, the Pharisee, he prayed recounting what he's not and what he does. The tax collector actually prays recounting what he is and what God does. So he is a sinner and he needs mercy. So he makes a plea to God for that mercy. He makes no mention of his own works of righteousness, his own obedience to the law or or probably disobedience to the law. And he makes a plea. And he's asking, when he asks for mercy, he's asking for atoning forgiveness. To, to cover over his sin. 
And in this really short prayer, the tax collector is, is trusting in God for his mercy. It, this is what it means to have faith. I recall a, a sermon I heard from a mentor and teacher many, many years ago when I was a little bit younger. And he was describing what faith is, uh, what faith entailed. He was drawing upon the early reformers who described it in three parts. Know, assent, and trust. So K-A-T. And, and so to help with that illustration, he had these uh, Kit Kat bars which he, he gave out to us to help us remember because, you know, candy and bribery goes a long way. No, meaning to, to have knowledge and an understanding of what was being presented, what was being claimed. Assent, meaning to acknowledge that it's true, to believe that it's true, to believe in it. And then trust, to exercise now that knowledge and that belief in it. So all three matters. It's not simply enough to uh, to know that our acceptance from God depends on God's mercy, not our merits. Uh, you know, anyone listening to this sermon this morning, this message this morning, might be able to walk away and tell someone else that, you know, whether they are a Christian or not. It's not even enough to believe that it's true. James 2.19, James is remarking to his readers, look, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. His point is that, great, you know, you have solid theology. But guess what? So do the demons. In fact, demons are just as orthodox, if not more orthodox, in their theology as Christians. They believe in God. They know he exists. But guess what? They're not saved. Why? I mean, they know they ascend, but they don't trust in it for themselves. They don't exercise their belief and their knowledge. They don't exercise faith. So what does that look like then for us to trust in God's mercy? Part of it might begin with even just the motivation of our for our merit, our righteousness. Uh, Tim Keller, he's the one who says, religion says, I obey, therefore I am accepted. Christianity says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Trusting in God's mercy doesn't mean that you stop being righteous, doesn't mean that you stop doing all these things. The Pharisee doesn't stop fasting or tithing or being super holy. But the difference there is that you stop trying to be right with God by being righteous. The tax collector knew that. The Pharisee didn't. Who does God accept? Who does he justify? Those who trust in God's mercy and not in their merit. Here's the second part of the answer. Those who lift, uh, those who do not lift themselves up by looking down at others. So when you look again at these two characters, the Pharisee, he treats others with contempt. And to treat others with contempt basically, you know, is to look down on them. There's a pretty negative connotation. The Pharisee is praying, and in his prayer, he's saying to God, I thank you, God, that I am not like this tax collector. Hard to do it without the pointing. You need the pointing. You know, this tax collector, I thank you that I'm not like him. The, The Pharisee is trying to justify himself by looking down at the tax collector. He's trying to lift himself up 
by pushing the, the others down. The, the irony here, though, is that the Pharisee now, like we would probably say he's pretty guilty of not loving his neighbor. But the irony is that now he's, that's the very thing that the tax collector is accused of doing through extorting others. And so by the Pharisee saying, you know, I am not like this tax collector, he is in effect showing himself to be more like a tax collector than he realizes. So the, the Pharisee treats others with contempt. The tax collector treats himself as the sinner. You know, as he's praying, this short prayer, he says, God, be merciful to me. And it's literally there, the sinner, not simply a sinner, but he's really highlighting the fact, I am the sinner. The focus is on this vertical relationship between him and God. He sees God, then he sees himself. And like Isaiah, it's crystal clear. Woe is me. I am unclean. I am the sinner. Now, why does this matter? Because I, th- I think in part, when we begin to trust in our own merit rather than God's mercy, it can actually lead to treating others with contempt. You know, Jesus talks about this pair of, of pride and contempt, and they go pretty well together. I think even sometimes one might lead to the other. I recall uh, many years ago taking this Old Testament theology class in, in college, and the professor in particular, he would post the exam grades up on, on the bulletin board outside his office. He was pretty old school. So uh, when he posted our grades, uh, he didn't list our names, obviously, but he listed our student IDs next to our grades. And so just by looking at the sheet of paper, it's pretty easy to see where you stood in relation to others. In fact, it was actually hard not to see it because all you had to do was, was move your, your line of sight up just a smidge, just a bit. You could see how the next person beat you by a point or two. You could move your line of sight down and you could see all the others that you outperformed. It also didn't help that, that some students, you know, they put their finger to the paper on the wall and just followed the line of numbers down to, until they got to their own test score, to, to their own student ID. Then you could really compare. You, you couldn't help but compare. And if you did well overall, then it made you feel pretty good. And not just because you did well objectively, but because you did well comparatively. You felt justified vindicated, accepted in some way, like you achieved something. And and some of you might know that feeling or or remember that feeling from way back when you were in school. The students are around you. Some of them are groaning, silent in defeat. And they ask you that question that always gets asked, you know, how did you do? What did you get? And you simply say, the smug expression maybe, I did all right. As your eyes suddenly become, you know, an iPhone measuring tool and you can physically measure the distance between your score and their score on that sheet of paper. You might even be smirking on the inside. Now, the truth is that yes, you you did better than many of the other students and you did well on one exam, but that's just one exam. Things look drastically different when you change your perspective, when you start comparing yourself, not with your fellow students, but with a professor and his years of experience and knowledge and wisdom. He is the one who wrote the exam. 
He's the one who helped with translating the NIV Bible that you're using to study for the exam that he wrote. So yeah, it's no comparison. But as a student, you probably don't see that. You're too busy looking at the students right next to you. In Romans 3.23, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so what Paul is getting at is that the, the grandeur of God's glory, his holiness, his presence, his majesty, it's so great such that any difference in perceived righteousness among men and women is rendered negligible. So think about it this way. As you drive through the city, Maybe as you're driving through Boston, you see short buildings and, and tall skyscrapers, right? The, the Prudential Center is much, much taller than the shops around it on Newbury Street, a few blocks away. But when you're, you're flying above Boston, when you change that perspective, when you pull up the satellite on Google Maps, you're so high up that any difference in their height is rendered negligible. It makes not really any difference. They all look kind of the same to me from, from that point of view. And we don't have to use buildings. We can use people. Uh, Taco Fall, center for the Boston Celtics. Incredibly tall center. So tall that he even makes the, the tall basketball players like Shaq look kind of short or normal. The point is that the tax collector here in our parable has a right view of God and a right view of himself. And so he trusts in God for mercy. And likewise, he's not treating others with contempt. This COVID pandemic has been tough on, on many of us. We're staying at home. We're keeping to ourselves. You know, except for the few of us who are serving on the live stream or as small group leaders, we're probably not seeing too many other CB members in such public or, or prominent roles. And maybe now, now is a good a time as any to reflect on your own relationship with God without trying to compare yourself too much to others. Do you, do you trust, are you trusting in God's mercy rather than your merit? Are you treating others with contempt or, or maybe conversely for, for many of you, do you actually look down on yourself as you look at others? I think there's hope here. Romans 3.23 does say, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But as we continue on these next few verses, there's a lot of language that echoes the language here in, in our parable this morning. Paul continues, Yes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, because in him, we can go home justified. So trust in God for his mercy and treat others without contempt. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for the good news of the gospel, but we also recognize that this news is 
is is different. It's countercultural. It's offensive even to think that our, our good works uh, make no difference when it comes to a right standing with you. Where we give thanks to the righteousness of Jesus Christ for his perfect obedience, for his sacrifice on the cross, for us, that we might have a relationship with you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would continue to enable in us desire to follow you, to live in light of the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.